This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare, and this is Speaker for the Living. I'm here with my co-host, JJ Genflone. Hello, JJ. Hello, world. How are you? I hope the world is fine. (laughs) So as uh, our intro says, we talk about human trafficking and forced labor, and we talk about it with as much evidence and sources and research as we can. There's some areas Uh where there's more research than others. And today we're going to talk about uh, illicit forced adoptions where the children are taken from parents and brought to other countries like the U.S. and the children may or may not know fully what's going on. And, And in this case, the international context. Before getting into that topic, I want to briefly acknowledge that the temporary refugee ban that was 420 days has now expired and what is now happening is 11 countries are now having an additional 90-day review period reportedly unofficially but according to leak those countries are Egypt, Iran, Libya, South Sudan, Yemen, Sudan, Iraq, Mali, North Korea, Somalia, and Syria, all Muslim majority except for South Sudan and North Korea. And North Korea, we have very few people that come from here anyway. Also, they decided to add additional vetting, such as having the same standards for women and children as for for males, and supposedly to mine social media posts a bit more and collect more biographical data. Now, what the articles I've read do not say is they do not actually give a justification for why they want to do that. There's no, this is why this will make us safer. This is the data that we looked at to see why this will matter. And my own opinion of this, based on people like Steve Bannon, who are by his own admission, very anti-refugee. The fact that he refers to books like Camp of the Saints, which if you Google it and and read it, uh, at the very most, you'll come away with a very negative view of refugees from that book. And that's really understating how negative the views of refugees are in that book. But I would interpret this as we found out ways where we could legally make it harder And this is after disrupting the refugee program for 120 days, which affects people who were already in the queue, which affects the sustainability of refugee organizations. And now by adding another 90-day review for places like Syria that have lots of refugees, there's another way to continue to make the program less sustainable, to make it so that people from these countries are like overall this makes it less likely that refugees are going to get through in the system because it makes the whole system less efficient and from a security perspective there there are different opinions of how to do security and 
there are people that even talk about with airports like how do we identify the people who are the threats and not treat everyone as an equal threat because if you treat everyone as an equal threat it's inefficient and it's argued that you may might be less likely to actually identify the threats if you treat everyone as a threat if that sounds counterintuitive it's a matter of how you apply your resources so by having uh, traveler programs where you have some partial vetting of people and then allow them to not have to take off their shoes every time and other things, it can make it so you can say, we believe these people are okay, but now we can focus on these other people. But in any case, my ultimate conclusion on this is it's doing what it's designed to do. It's not, they're not doing this to keep us safe because the refugee program already is highly vetted and the changes that they're making are likely just to slow down the program and make it less likely that we'll hit our new cap of 45,000 refugees. So that's what I assume their motive, motives are based on what they've said. Otherwise, I'll just call these changes dumb. Those are my thoughts. you have any thoughts on it? Just that we're, we're seeing that anytime there's a delay in the refugee process, what that does is that sort of kicks the can down the road to sort of a compounded problem because now you have camps that are that are over full you have organizations that are dealing with like the placement of people or the you know like the allocation of resources for people who suddenly may go from having zero families to, to provide for to having 50 families to provide for so it's it's just this this is harmful to the communities that people are going to go into it's harmful for the people themselves and also you know when you have an immigration ban it, I, I heard people say, you know, like, oh, it's only for a few months. It's not a long time. Think about all of the sort of massive things that can happen in a month in someone's life. You have people who get ill. You have people who get separated. You have kids that have been out of school. It becomes a, a, a big issue. Well, and reportedly some people, like, you go through a process that's pretty regimented. And so if people have to restart a two-year process because of disruptions like this, mm-hmm. that's not just a couple months. And camps, like when we talk about helping people over there, refugee camps are not normal life. Like what, say, people in Syria had as normal life before being in a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. Refugee camps are underfunded. They are not always as safe as they should be. There's vulnerabilities. Like it's not an equivalent of to, yeah, what to having a home. the average person had beforehand. Yeah, I think there's this weird perception that it's like that you move into like an apartment block and it's fine when really it's not. They're, they're, I mean, while the people running them are doing the absolute best they can, they're largely tent cities. And I've never known a camp to be funded as much as they needed to be, right? I've, you and I both have friends that sort of work in the sector. We have professors that worked in the sector. We took classes on this. I've I've never once heard of a camp where they're like, no, we have everything that we need to serve our population. We're good. Like, it's it's not that. So. Well, and part of the reason, aside from what we talk about repeatedly, vulnerability and how, and, and also attitude, that when we start talking about refugees as threats, and yes, there are a very small number that could be threats, which is why we have a very extensive vetting process before bringing people over but like this is a form of soft power this is a way of of the u.s saying we're better than you we're 
we're, we're going for a higher standard. And when people point to like Arab nations who didn't join the refugee treaty and saying, well, they're smart. They didn't accept refugees. Well, they're also not joining many international programs to be a part of a company of nations who are trying to be more open and better. And yes, that, 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 that is a slap at them in that regard. But we've tried to have some moral leadership in the world and whatever imperfections are with that when we do things like say, no, we're, we're, we're going to try to keep out Muslim refugees when, when we, and in essence, decide we're going to have a military approach to Syria primarily and only help people over there. It's again, strategically, I think, stupid. Like why, why cut ourselves off from a key option? Like if we wanted to argue, let's just reduce how many people or something like that, but let's make sure that we're still open and we're still vetting. That strategically makes sense. By, by doing it this way, we're actually, in some ways, helping ISIS's recruiting, mm-hmm. which is why in some other materials they, called, they call the travel ban the blessed ban because they can use it to recruit people and say the U.S. this is what the U.S. thinks of you they really don't care and they're really anti-Muslim and I'm not talking hypothetical no we know that this is a thing it is a thing so while we are highly focused on vulnerabilities and why while we while trafficking and slavery is our primary filter like I'm giving some arguments here that are from a security perspective as well just like trafficking, like trafficking itself is also security related. If people can be taken advantage of, if, they, if they're brought into the country and exploited, and there's international criminal networks involved in this. And I'm glad at least our current administration recognizes that part. But we also have to think about what happens afterwards, what happens to people after they're trafficked so that we can make sure they're not victims of crime in some other way. And so when we move on to international adoptions, like we, we have all these other ways of connecting with other countries where we could be applying resources. Mm-hmm. And in the case of international adoptions, there, there's been multiple occasions where a child in another country, could be a baby, could be a few years old, is in some way acquired without the parents' consent and is brought over to the U.S. and there's some one or one or more agencies involved, mm-hmm. and where there just is not well, it's not just the problem of that happening, but it's what happens afterwards. And uh, we're going to give a few examples of how that is part of the problem too. What do you do after after care? and resolution of situations when people have been wronged or identification of people who have been trafficked, this is still inadequate across the board. So with that, uh, JJ, you want to give the the proper explanation of what we're talking about today? So what we're talking about is something that is actually referred to as child laundering. So this is, we're talking about the trafficking of ch- children via illegal or false adoptions, both domestically and internationally. 
And I think people get sort of confused about the difference maybe between kidnapping and human trafficking. Because we've seen that we've seen that pop up a few times. So kidnapping is when you take someone away against their will. Maybe it's for ransom. Maybe it's um, to perpetrate sort of sexual crimes against them. Maybe it's it's to hold them for a while um, and then ultimately kill them. Kidnapping is a crime. So that's why when we're normally we're talking about, like, say, like a serial killer who, who grabs you, takes you away for a week or two and then kills you. That's kidnapping. That's not human trafficking. Trafficking is when you're illegally trading or selling a person for either exploitation or commercial gain. So that's sort of the difference there legally between those. And I can see how those look and and seem like a very sort of weird or vague line. But that's that's the biggest sort of easiest way to articulate the difference. Kidnapping, they just take you. Trafficking, they take you for the intention of making or gaining some sort of profit. That's beyond sort of just like personal enjoyment of being a terrible person. Okay. Now, when you're talking about child laundering, what we're talking about is adoptions, primarily international adoptions, but they can happen domestically, where children, via the exchange of money, um, deceit, and uh, maybe a mix of force or coercion, are taken from parents or other guardians and given to new parents or guardians fraudulently. So like the case that you detailed, Seth, what we have is so we have parents, say a U.S.-based parent, um, Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill want a child. They decide for whatever reason, let's say, to adopt internationally. They reach out, say, to something that is, is generally called dismissively a baby broker. So these are people working for organizations that may be legitimate or may not be. They may be tied to the government. They may be involved in sort of children's rights work or foster care out of the country. But they reach out to them and say, hey, you know, we're looking to adopt. Normally the parents go through sort of a, a screening process. They go through, um, depending on the organization, depends on like the rigor of it, but they, they go through a screening process and then they pay money. They pay money either to the government, the orphanage, intermediaries, maybe the birth family, they and they pay out this money not to buy a child because that's illegal but to sort of pay for the processes of getting the child to the u.s so that's things like paying for all the legal filings paying all the past school fees the child might have um, gathered if, it, if it's a newborn sometimes it's um, medical fees for both the child and then the birth mother paying for plane tickets all of that and then playing paying for the services of the baby broker so this, this can be large amounts of money, large amounts of money. And so these adoptive, normally Western parents, pour money into this baby broker. The baby broker then calls back and says, hi, I, I have a child for you. Would you like to adopt, say, uh, Anissa? And they say, yes, we would love to. Anissa arrives in the U.S. Oftentimes there's extreme sort of language barriers there. And then what we see recently in sort of these cases that have hit the media is that as kids got more comfortable with English or as kids got more comfortable with their families, they started talking about their home lives back in their in their country of origin. And what the parents began to realize was what they've been told by the baby broker, normally that these were abandoned children, children who had been in orphanages their whole lives, children who had been taken by into state care because of 
violence or um, lack of care given to them by their parents were actually kids that were like, yeah, I, I really miss my mom. I loved when my mom would take me to church on Sundays. I have three brothers and sisters. My mom's a midwife. You know, I lived at home. When do I get to go home? And then it started to come out through interviewing the children and then speaking with rights of children's organizations generally in the country that the child originated in, that these children were taken fraudulently. And how they were taken fraudulently is sort of actually like, I hate to say this, but it's, it's, this is, I think why Seth and I get tired sometimes in this because it's the same story again and again. And what happens is you have a baby broker who comes into a poor area, um, with impoverished parents or parents who are undergoing a flux, so say refugee parents. And they, the people coming into these communities, they're middle or upper class citizens. They appear very well educated, but a lot of times they have some sort of tie to the community. So they're the same ethnicity or the same religion. And they come in and they go into the schools, they go into the churches, they go into the community centers and say, hey, we we know that you're struggling. We work for, you know, an NGO or an IGO that can provide poor children with like care and housing and foods via this hostel we run or the school we run. And then sometimes it's labeled an orphanage. But most of the times it's phrases like a hostel or a school. And parents say, Great, like please like take our children. The parents don't have the intention to sever their parental rights. They don't think that they're giving up their kids. What they think is that basically a, a boarding school type situation has come in and said, hey, your kid will get a great education and be really well provided for for a year or two until you get your feet back on the ground and, and you're good to go. And then you can come in and reclaim your child. You'll be able to come visit. They'll be able to come visit you. You'll be able to call and talk. They don't realize that their kid is going to end up overseas. And they don't realize that they're mm-hmm. losing their baby. Right. And to, to go off on a brief tangent, like this can get complicated and some of the yeah. things that happen overseas are poverty related or just saying how how do we have more food, how do we have more money and having people who are less scrupulous who are doing things to take advantage of the situation sometimes parents just simply doing what they think is best with the limit, limited options that they have and like what can happen like there's been multiple instances in Cambodia of fake orphanages where they'll essentially just bring in kids for short periods of time where where it'll be a recurring thing where the children come and and then there's international visitors who come and volunteer and you know there's still love and stuff that can happen then but it's under false pretenses and where there's usually somebody at the top that's profiting from it but in that case, the par- the children will return home, and so, and so it's not the same. But it's it's that there's multiple things that might be going on, and, and it's hard to know what the parents might have been told. And uh, on a related note, just to talk about context, I spent three weeks at an orphanage in Uganda, and one of the things I learned is it can be really complicated. There's places in Uganda that have been really disrupted. There's places where, where AIDS has ravaged their, their parents who've died. 
there are also parents who don't want their children and so the children end up being orphans because the parents can't take care of them or they just don't want them. So it's, it's, it's a complicated context, but something that's really key in our discussion is the parents wanting their children and the parents not intending to relinquish their children and where they are taken away in some fashion under false pretenses. No, and that's and for for people who might dismiss this as being like a non-Western phenomenon, this was a thing that was actually common in Western-style adoptions. There used to be a thing both in England and the U.S. called kept children, where parents, this is going to sound terrible, but so parents who couldn't provide for the day-to-day care of their children could turn those children over to an orphanage and for a small amount of money, kind of like you would pay on a pawn ticket, could pay the orphanage on a, on a monthly basis to keep their child from being adopted out. And these children were called kept children. The idea being that these were, these were children who were wanted. Sometimes they were called wanted children. So these were children who parents were, were hoping that eventually their financial straits would improve enough that they could come pick them up. They could come provide for them on their own. And until then, they, they weren't interested in these parents going elsewhere. I mean, these these kids going to parents elsewhere. So that's kind of where this sort of thing originates. You can see how this becomes, you know, difficult. And then there's also mixing into this is that what can also sometimes happen is parents will be told that their kids are being offered a sponsorship overseas. So the parents are signing away the rights for their children to travel internationally. They're signing away the rights for their children um, to be moved out of the country. But again, it's via oftentimes posed as part of like a church organization that's teaching. And lastly, as long as we're talking about this country, there are stories of things happening here and there are also conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. And not saying we'll never talk about that, but it's a matter of having very concrete data before we go into those sorts of stories. I don't know if you have and anything so, else you want to say there. So Yeah, no, one of one of the things is so like the case study that's often mentioned that I just have familiarity with is the is the China case study. Which what happened there is that during the one child policy and during the economic downturn, there were a lot of children, particularly Chinese girls, who were available for adoption. And so for a while, China became like one of the main destinations, kind of like Guatemala, for Western families seeking adoption. Um, and what happened, what, or what some cases have responded to, and we've put links to those case studies below this podcast is there started to be reports of children then not even being fraudulently taken where it's sort of this weird mix of of people in rural areas maybe not understanding the legalese of what is happening or maybe being bit slept by brokers but children straight up being kidnapped children children just being taken and as a result of those children being taken and being removed parents basically reporting them as being kidnapped and then ultimately discovering that their children had been fraudulently turned over for a profit to a baby broker or an orphanage who had then moved the children overseas and that illegally to return to, to get their children back was almost an impossibility 
that's one of the big differences with international adoptions because then you get into international law which is pretty weak on this as far as i know and then you get into what are the national laws and how do the countries work together and is there really much recourse for a parent in uganda or india to do anything about it and the short answer is not really yeah no and it and it becomes this very very frustrating thing where adoptive parents who who were attempting to do a good thing we're, we're attempting to to bring children into into their lives who have fallen in love with these children who these children have been integrated up to their families find out that they've that they've participated in the stealing of a child from a family but then when they go to return that child when they when they work to try to reunite that family discover that there's no way to find the child's birth parents well and with human trafficking in general or potentially with kidnapping like if the people doing this can get away with it and make money and and not have a lot of repercussions then that gives them reason to do it with impunity and to keep doing it this is one of the big issues with trafficking in general is if we don't have ways of shutting it down, then criminal networks or individuals have reasons to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also part of it too, is that when we're talking about the finances, you can make anywhere, it's it's reported that sometimes these these baby brokers and these international adoptions can make anywhere from 2000 to $20,000 USD. And when you combine that, when you, when you think about what that is in some of the areas that these children are being taken from, it's a, it's, it's a yearly income. There's also sort of this weird, we see this in some, in some forms of, of trafficking. Um, we, we see this in, in some forms where people will justify or, or attempt to justify their trafficking, right? And one of the ways that they'll do that is they'll say, well, I've improved this child's situations. They've been moved from rural Guatemala to living in New York City with exceptionally wealthy parents. You know, they are going to get so much more of a benefit than they, they would if their, if their lives played out naturally the way that they were before in their in their home country but that's not an excuse to steal someone and profit from their sale that's actually not a justification that's a way to try to make yourself feel better but what you are being is you're being a slave agent well and people in other countries like their children yeah parents are parents worldwide and And it yeah and it's very colonial to say that sort of narrative that oh well they they have more material wealth in a better country therefore it's okay to not recognize the rights of the parents in the other country because obviously they're worth less. That's kind yeah, of what no, it's there's, communicating. There's something there's something very, very colonial about it. There's something very, very racial about it as well because these are primarily elite, wealthy, um, white Westerners who are coming into these areas um, and adopting... Uh, children of color so it's just it's so there's there's so much to unpack here but but the big thing is 
is that what we're seeing is uh, international adoption being used as a form of trafficking. Now, this is when it's fraudulent adoption. Yeah, and I'll, I want to be legal, yeah, yeah, I want to be very clear on the legal. I yeah, I have some good friends. Adoption. I have some good friends who have adopted children from Haiti, and you know, I I, I don't doubt that they're having a good life because I know, I know the family and they're really great people. And it was a very rough process. There were ways that people in, in the other con- in Haiti tried to take advantage of the situation. It was drawn out. It costs money. And I believe the parents are doing a really good thing. And I know that the children are going to have a wonderful upbringing, but they were doing a legal option and it was really arduous and hard. Yeah, no, and, and the thing is, too, is that for the, a lot of the cases that we've seen reported in the media, the parents that were involved didn't realize that they were participating in a fraud until later. You know, so you have people stateside or maybe orphanage workers even who aren't aware of what's going down. You also have then two people who are um, children who are adopted legally, um, who are brought into into families. Um who are adored and who are in a much better situation and who have found, you know, we, I have friends that have been adopted from overseas. I have members of my own family that were adopted from overseas. I also have friends that were adopted uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. based domestically. And adoption is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing that, that children, instead of being left in care homes or, or left to themselves, are um, able to, to find families. Right. That That's that really the key. Them. Is... What, Having a family, if they have a family in another country, great. If they if they don't and, and they're brought to the U.S. and they have a family, great. Those those are those are good and desirable. Yeah, our our concern here is not the valid legal adoptions. Our concern is the illegal adoptions where children that are wanted and loved are taken via force, fraud, or coercion out of their situation to generate money for this intermediary party. That's that's the distinction. And I and I want to make that really clear. The problem is is that when we're trying to say things within human trafficking, we need that whole force fraud coercion, but we also need what we've talked about here very very firmly as act, right? Um, act means in purpose. And so that can be very difficult in these sort of very complicated situations where legal documents may be forged, where the children actually are from might be misplaced. You know, that can be very difficult, especially if, as sometimes what will happen is that um, adoptions will go up for an area due to knowledge that there's, you know, that there's been a refugee issue, knowledge that there's been some sort of instability. For example, I'm thinking of all the children that were adopted in Operation Baby Lift in Vietnam at the ending of um, the Vietnam War. You might see sort of an increase in adoption after national disasters, as we saw in Haiti. So this can be really, really difficult. And then this is really then hard for the children who remember a loving family and are ripped apart from 
that family. You know, this is the stuff the kid nightmares are made out of, right? That you're taken um, away from, from people who love you and put in with strangers. Yeah. So there's a few stories that we can talk about. Part of the reason that we're doing the podcast now is because of an article that published on CNN written by Jessica Davis where that happened to them. And mm-hmm. it's something that we've been wanting to talk about, but there, as we realize going forward, there's so many more stories to talk about than we realized that relate to human trafficking. Yeah, what'd you think of, the, of Jessica Davis's story? Oh, I mean, heartbreaking, heartbreaking, because in particular what you have is you have even sort of the, the adopted family members who when they realize the child that was assigned to them, the child that they adopted, uh, the story they were told did not match, that she had a loving family, that she had a family who missed her, that she had a family she wanted to be reunited with. When they set about doing that and trying to um, reconnect the families, they were in fact told um, by lawmakers, well, you can decide if you want to return her or not. You can just keep her. Which really pushes for the commodification of children. The the presence of mind and the honesty with uh, this family and uh, I believe her husband's name was Adam. Yeah, Jessica and Adam. Like that she even recognized that that's horrible. Like that. Yeah, and it, and it puts the families in a really – I mean think about it. You, you want to adopt a child. You want to bring people – you want to bring someone into your, into your life, right? Yeah, and they had the best of motives. And, That's why they went to Uganda. And, and it's also one of those things where people will go, well, why don't you adopt domestically? And U.S. domestic adoption is very difficult and very expensive. There is sort of this perception, I think, again, kind of – I mean, all best intentions is sort of this colonialist perception that, like, I'm helping kids just by getting them to the U.S. So – they reach out, they adopt a daughter, they fall in love with her, her family integrates with them. They have other children that become attached, young children who become attached to their sister. And then, all of a sudden, what you end up with is a government that's telling you that basically you bought a person. And it's your decision whether or not you return her like a coat. Well, and in, in this case, they, the, the girl came to them named Namada. She was six years old in 2015. And as they talked to her, because in this case she's a little older, they realized that what she was saying and what the paperwork was saying didn't line up with the And uh, the adoption agency was called European Adoption Consultants. And they've since been debarred by the U.S. State Department because they found an evidence of a pattern of serious, willful, and grossly negligent failure to comply with the standards and of aggregating circumstances indicating that continued accreditation of EAC would not be in the best interest of the children and families concerned. That's a really legalese way of saying it. Yeah. And so they just went and they, they figured out what was going on and that it didn't line up and then realized what happened. And I, I can't imagine how heartbreaking this is. No. And then also for, I mean, so now you have, you have a family in Uganda that's thought that their daughter was gone for forever being told that even once they find her, whether or not she's returned is based entirely on the decision of the adopted parents 
you have adopted parents who are heartbroken, who who have lost someone they've they've taken into their hearts to be a daughter. And then you have a little girl who's about seven, eight years old now, who's been in the middle of all of this, who's dealing now with, who's going to be dealing with, who dealt initially with culture shock, now with reverse culture shock. She's been in a U.S. school for about a year and a half, so she's missed her homeschooling. She's been speaking English this whole time. She's got brothers and sisters at home that she left. She's got brothers and sisters now in the U.S. that she left. Like, what? It's, it's, this is going to be very, I think, difficult to, to adjust. She's got somebody who she called mom for, you know, a little over a year who's gone now. Right? Right. Because they're, they're even actually to, to return her to her biological parents, her adopted parents, had to split up with the dad going and the mom staying at home because they actually were afraid that there might be some action taken against them for for sort of exposing this organization as being fraudulent. Yeah. Now, in the case of this situation, the mother was aware that her daughter was going to be with a family in the United States who were going to sponsor her and provide her with an education. So she thought, like, oh, I get... My child gets a, a leg up, gets American education, but still her daughter. Well, she did Anthony, not relinquish her motherhood. No, she didn't relinquish her parental rights. And part of that was that at any time she could bring them home. Mm-hmm. And then two, the other, the other part of it that I don't think has been reported as much, but is present in the CNN article is that there was going to be, there's supposed to be able to be constant communication. So that letters could be exchanged, um, they could communicate via phone, but basically that this little girl was not going to go out into the world thinking that she was left or given up. And that's not the case right now. And that's really, I mean, it's, it's, so this is what I think you and I tried to articulate when I was like, it's complicated. So you do have parents who are like, yeah, like I, please take my, take my child, put them in a school, take my child's. Um, send them to the U.S. for education because this is sort of this promised land or send them abroad because it's not always just the U.S. It might be France, it might be Germany, you know, take them, send them for education, but they're still my child. And if something is to happen and I want them to come home or if they call me and tell me that they're being mistreated or something, I can I can take them back only then to find out that legally they were taken away. And, and that's heartbreaking. And that is fraud. Ellen, it is fraud. And she mentioned like just some of what she was told when she was getting advice. And one person that Jessica knew suggested that she just not tell anyone what her daughter had told them. Mm-hmm. And then Jessica was also told that it was her Christian duty to keep her and raise her in the proper faith. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to know what Western privilege and white privilege is, that sort yeah. of sentiment is exactly that there's also too the side piece that that's been left out kind of of the story is that there were a number of children i think it was six or seven children from the village who all went for this for the schooling opportunity being sponsored by a western family and then have since been separated and not all of them have been returned so that's part of it too we see this in trafficking where people see people think that there's sort of a safety in numbers so if it's not just one girl from a village if it's a group if it's not you know going to respond to an ad to be a waitress if it's not one guy but a group of of boys going to be coal miners together that they're not going to be taken advantage of because there there's that safety in numbers 
when in fact what just happens is they're very often split up very quickly. As far as I know, one one other, from what I've read, one other daughter was returned, but that was it. So to give um, one other story, this is from Scott Carney's The Red Market. It uh, talks about different types of trafficking, including or- organ trafficking, bone thieves, blood farmers. In the case of this one, it was uh, Chennai, India, and the parent, Sivagama, and her son, Subash. She left Subash by the neighborhood water pump, and then within five minutes, the child was gone. And no idea what happened. They spent money trying to track the child down. Eventually, it was traced to an orphanage, Malaysian social services, and they found out who had taken the person. It was a former gardener who'd worked for Malaysian social services. And they claimed it wasn't a fee for the child, that they're not actually buying them, and blah, 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 other lies. And when it was investigated between 1991 and 2003, that Malaysian social services had at least 165 international adoptions, mostly to the United States, Netherlands, and Australia, which earned some 250000 in fees. Mm-hmm. Now, where this also gets complicated is uh, Scott Carney and other people managed to track down the parents. They weren't very receptive. And in this case, the child was really young, so that there wasn't a, an account for the child to tell. And really the only real world that the child had known since it was a toddler was this new family. So somebody close to the family actually had this to say about the situation. They said, it was the parents' decision not to disrupt the now stable life this child is experiencing based on the incomplete information from the family in India. Mm-hmm. When the child is older, the adoptive parents plan on telling him about the situation if he wishes to pursue it. I know they will support him in his decision. All decisions of this family have been made not for personal personal gratification, but out of genuine love for the mental well-being of their son. They are the closest to the situation. They know this child the best. Give them the freedom to make loving choices for their son based on all of the information. You know, the parents were like, convey our condolences to the family. We understand what they must be going through and what a blow this must be to them. But at that time, they were like, it's not the same child. And... and these are two different responses by the families, but what do you do? And the the fact that there isn't much of a legal framework to force anything and that mm-hmm. the adoptive parents in this situation, you know, they're, they're glad their child's not dead and then they just wanted to know their child, but then they can't have that either. And, and so they also dealt with an intermediate agency. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just Malaysian Social Services. There was another agency. But when you have laws that can't deal with it, when you have both parents who aren't an equal legal footing, when you have these people who create these situations, I mean, ultimately it's because there are criminal people who set all this up and wrong, mul- wrong both sides. And in, in the case of this one, if you've already had your child for a few years mm-hmm. and then you fa- find out the situation, how, how rough would that be? No, it's this is this is not it's not an easy fix. It's not it's not an easy solve. And you feel you feel badly for both sets of parents. 
the parents who were trying to do right by their children, the parents who were trying to do right by their new adopted children. And, and who's the bad guy in this situation is these people who are, are working, these orphanages and these baby brokers and these people working as intermer- intermediaries who are treating these kids like they're a buying process. And though Malaysian social services lost the right to do international adoptions, they also denied that they did anything wrong, that they did what they are being accused of. <sighs> to also say what Jessica Davis said, we're, we're not condemning international adoptions, and we fully support any parent who, who's done that. It's just there are times where this sort of thing happens and where it's a uh, child laundering situation. I guess I would just wonder about what can be done with laws to improve the situation. I don't know, but something needs to be improved. Yeah, I think I think what it needs to be is I think one understanding for, for people who are interested in adopting uh, to be aware that these frauds do happen and to sort of seek out particularly if they're if they're going from a country that's been kind of known if they're if they're adopting a child from a country that's been known to have these issues in the past with these baby brokers to really really look out via contacting the child welfare agencies in these countries particularly ones that deal with with managing sort of adoption or fraudulent adoption that that's a good way to start to just know sort of what agencies or companies are are good to go through versus which ones are not which ones have been known to um, be harmful, which ones have not. And then the second one is then for those of you who aren't, you know, actively adopting or involved in that, but to continue to work for poverty alleviation, to continue working for educational opportunities in developing countries or people who are going through vulnerable circumstances, like after a natural disaster, um, after political violence, things of that nature. And then the final one is that if you were at all interested in working with policy or the law, working really, working to kind of um, strengthen adoption law and procedure, both internationally and domestically. But those those are really, I mean, small goals. <laughs> small things. But the big one is, is that if you're interested in adopting, I mean, please continue to adopt. Please continue to provide homes for children. Just do a little bit more due diligence with, with where children are coming from and how. All right. Enough of that sad story. Yeah. We will have other sad stories next week. I know. <laughs> the sad stories never end here on Speaker for the Living. Ba-dum, bum. That's our new jingle. <laughs> <laughs> we only laugh because it's insane. I know it's it's again it's that's everything's ruined and terrible and you gotta find joy where you can people and if that's in a terrible jingle sung tonelessly by me that's where we are uh, as always if there's a particular topic we haven't covered you want us to cover please go ahead shoot us a tweet an email a bird call a raven a steam signal something and yeah. we will make sure that we cover it for you yeah Ra- raven's always a good choice I do love a good raven they're tasty. If, however, you send hate mail or a dick pic via Raven, we're, we're done. I'm going to keep the Raven. I'm not sending it back. All sorts of Game of Thrones thoughts I could share right now, but I will, I I will tomorrow. Know. All right. Until next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.
This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.